What up and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast brought to you by Subway. I'm Joe Wolfond and today is a very special day in Pound the Rock world because after 16 hapless years, Washington Wizards president and general manager Ernie Grunfeld has finally been relieved of his duties and I can think of nobody I would rather share the studio with on this momentous occasion than my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Joe, what's going on, man? What's going on indeed? I I feel almost responsible for Ernie Grunfeld, you know, other than his 16 disgusting years on the job. It's almost like this show's responsible for a guy losing his job. And I don't even know where we go from here. Yeah. I feel like, you know, we've been building toward this moment for so long. This has become a passion project for you. I don't know. It just feels like like we've come to the end of something, and uh, I don't know how we move forward. But for now, I'm going to kick it to you and let you talk about what Ernie Grunfeld's tenure meant to you and why it came to an end when it did. All right, let's run through some facts, okay? 16 years on the job, okay, in the NBA, running a franchise, in a league where usually you miss the playoffs like two, three years in a row. If, if you're not like a contender within, I don't know, five, six years, like you're probably out of a job. This guy almost tripled that. He was the fourth longest tenured uh, front office Yeah, executive you know the other long, tenu- long tenured executive for Danny Age, uh, Pat Riley. Who else am I missing? R.C. R.C. Buford. You know what those three guys have in common? They won championships and built sustainable models of contention. Here's what Ernie Grunfeld's done in his 16 years on the job in Washington. A 440 win percentage. If if you took a 16-year standings, he'd be 24th overall. The Wizards, 24th overall in the last 16 years. 11th in the hapless East. They won one division title in 16 years. They never finished with a top three seed. They made the playoffs 50% of the time, which is whatever. Again, in the East. Never made the East Finals. They went 4-8 and eight in playoffs. Zero 50-win seasons. Six 50-loss seasons. He lasted 16 years. He traded the number five pick in the vaunted 2009 draft class. Steph Curry was still on the board at five. DeMar DeRozan was still on the board at five. Drew Holiday went later. A lot of guys went in that draft. He traded the number five pick in the 2009 draft for one year of Randy Foy and Mike Miller. He lasted 16 years. How long did he last? 16 years. This Uh, is... It's a sad day for Pound the Rock and for all NBA content makers, to be honest. Uh, it's a great day for Sarah McLaughlin because that song is going to be used a lot, I think, if, for anyone talking about Ernie Grunfeld this week. But uh, there's, always another, uh, there's always another bad executive around the corner. I'm sure by this time next year, Gar Foreman and John Paxson will be the, the butt of our jokes and, and have our ire. But for now, man... Pour some out for our fallen soldier, Ernie Grunfeld. That guy did a lot for this show. Absolutely. And I I mean, I think ultimately this was the right decision for the Wizards. Uh, I think you would agree that it probably should have happened at least a couple of years earlier. Probably about 15 years ago. But um, I'm just, I'm interested both by the timing of it and the motivation seemingly behind the move. Because here's what uh, Wizards owner Ted Leonsis said in the wake of this move. He said, We did not meet our stated goal of qualifying for the playoffs this year. So obviously thinking big. Um, And he called the decision very, very binary. So, of course, it's not championship or bust, but make the playoffs or bust. And he said he needed to uphold a culture of accountability, which 
to me is kind of laughable after like you said 16 years without really uh holding anybody in the organization to that standard so cash if you if you had to kind of lay it out um aside you know you, you mentioned that move on draft night in 2009 trading away um that number five pick but what are what are some other moves that grunfeld made that you think just you know that were unforgivable that made his tenure such a failure so there's a guy on Twitter, his name's Patrick Ruby. Uh, he had actually put this together, I believe, last year. He put together this awesome uh, compilation, essentially, of all of the draft picks Ernie Grunfeld has had during his tenure as Wizards GM and what basically remains of them or what they turn into. And it is an absolute dumpster fire. Like you, he's going back here. Actually, this isn't even his whole tenure. This is just 10 years, the last 10 years, going back to 2009. It is absolutely absurd. Like I mentioned the number five pick that turned into nothing in 2009. 2010, number seven pick, Kevin Serafin. 2011, number six pick, Jan Vesely. Kawhi Leonard, Clay Thompson on the board at the time. Nothing out of that asset. You just keep going like over and over. It doesn't end. And that's just the draft. That says nothing about how poorly he managed um, the salary cap and money. John Wall, by the way, his four-year, $170 million extension kicks in next season. Hasn't even started yet. He lasted 16 years. I think to me, I, I don't actually see a ton of out-and-out, inexcusable, disastrous moves. What I see is, in totality, a lot of moves that worked out poorly, and they compounded each other. And I think, I mean, look, the Yan Mahimi contract was... A disaster, obviously. The John Wall extension turned into a disaster, but at the time it was signed, Wall was coming off his best professional season. The Wizards had won 49 games that year. Wall was an all-NBA point guard, uh, had led them to the cusp of the conference finals, and there, there weren't a lot of people that really batted an eyelash when that extension was signed. I think a lot of people considered it the right move at the time, and obviously the injuries that Wall has had to deal with since then have made it look like a complete catastrophe. The Otto Porter contract, kind of the same thing. At the time, they were sort of over a barrel at risk of losing him for nothing. Uh, he'd been poached on the restricted free agent market with a predatory offer sheet. I think they made the right decision in matching it. And then they ultimately had to trade him just to clear that salary off their books. I don't agree with the trade that they made and the players that they brought back because now, of course, they're faced with decisions on what to do with the impending free agents that came in. And... I don't necessarily think that they got equivalent value for him. I don't think the Ubre trade was a particularly good one to get half a season of Trevor Ariza in a fruitless playoff chase, you know, for a player who still, I think, had some untapped upside. But a lot of these moves are just like, okay, you can see the rationale behind them, and they just blew up in his face. And, you know, after a certain amount of time, like, you just... You can't keep piling bad move on bad move and expect to keep your job. I mean, a well, lot evidently of you can. You can do it for 16 <laughs> years. You can do it for 16 years. The Ted Leonsis owns the team. Right. But I think I think having a, you know at least a baseline justification for some of those moves helps in at least being able to say, look, at, at the time, this move made some measure of sense. And I don't know... I think ultimately what damned him is he didn't really have a cohesive vision for what he wanted this team to look like and where he wanted to go. And, you know, I think the most ambitious thing the team probably did, I think they made a good faith attempt to try and lure Kevin Durant. Now, it obviously proved totally misguided. 
They brought in Scott Brooks, gave him an exorbitant contract that now they're probably going to have to eat because I don't know if he's going to survive after this season. And Durant didn't even give them a meeting, so that proved to be a disaster. But at least at that point, they were kind of thinking big. And, and now, I mean, I'm just sort of wondering if you are the next Wizards general manager, where do you even start with trying to clean up this mess? Because you've got Bradley Beal, who is... I think a franchise player now borderline all NBA 13 this year. Exactly. And we, you know, we talked about that on last week's episode. Uh, he didn't make either of our all NBA teams, but I think there's a pretty decent chance that he will. That would make him eligible for a designated veteran extension this off season, the Supermax. And I mean, given how the wall Supermax extension worked out for them, I don't know how the wizards are going to feel about maxing out Beal. He's got a couple of years left on his contract, but do they have any faith that they're going to be able to retain him past those two years if they don't lock him up right now? I don't know. Uh, do they want to go down that road with the Supermax again and lock themselves into a player who... I mean, frankly, Beal had some injury issues early in his career. He's been pretty damn healthy as of late, and he, I think, is one of the, if not the minutes leader in the NBA this season, at least on a per-game basis. He's played a ton of minutes. He's been rather durable. So I don't know. I mean... On the one hand, their cap sheet is very clogged right now. On the other hand, after next season, they have two guaranteed contracts on their books. It's Beal and Wall, and that's it. So what would you do here, Cash? I mean, would you pivot toward a full-scale rebuild, just tank, try and trade Beal and start over from scratch? Or would you kind of try and tweak things around the margins and continue to remain competent, maybe sign some short-term deals so you can remain lean, lock up Beal long-term and see if you can move forward with a playoff team that's built around him. Yeah, look, I think I think as evidenced the last couple of years and this season especially, I don't think you have to do anything drastic to tank, right? Like even Bradley Beal, as great as he's been, if Bradley Beal's your best player with this supporting cast, you're probably a bad team anyway. So I don't rush to trade Beal. Um, you've got him locked in for a while. It's not like if you wait till next season or even halfway through next season, all of a sudden he's this depreciated asset. The The problem is, and I've mentioned this before, you trade a guy like Beal in you know, hopes of tanking or whatever the case may be in the hopes that you get some laundry luck and land a talent like Bradley Beal, like an all-NBA type talent. And sure, you can say, well, no, you tank for guys like Zion. They're truly transcendent. Of course, yes, you do. But more often than not, having a good lottery trip is coming out with someone like Bradley Beal. So it's like you're trading this guy away just to hope you get him again in three, four years when you're contending. On the other hand, though, I still understand it because with Beal, you know, you're, you're bad, not bad, but enough. not bad enough. Exactly. So I don't know. I'd say maybe they they wait till next season, see what whoever they hire as a new GM, see what, they, what can be done in the summer. Maybe they make a couple... Um, short like short-term pickups that raise their ceiling a little bit where they can get back in the playoff mix and mm -hmm. then see what they do with maybe some cap space later since they don't really have a ton of long-term contracts but it's just that the John Wall contract right now is really complicating everything because obviously that's the guy you want to move and no one's taking that contract yeah that contract's not going anywhere like um, we didn't even mention Ernie Grunfeld it, it was only a one-year deal so I guess you can say there was little risk involved but it was, it was he signed Dwight Howard all right he signed Dwight Howard in 2018 I think the, the inexcusable thing was giving him a player option on the what, second What year. are you doing? Um, so, you know, Dwight Howard is probably going to be on their books for next year, I would assume. I, I mean, I would almost guarantee that he picks up that player option. So here's a list of players who the Wizards are going to have a decision to make on. And let me ask you what you would do. 
Trevor Ariza, unrestricted free agent. Thomas Bryant, restricted free agent. Thomas Sadoransky, restricted free agent. Bobby Portis, restricted free agent. Jeff Green, unrestricted. Jabari Parker, $20 million team option. Uh, Shasson Randall, restricted free agent. Sam Decker, restricted free agent. And Wesley Johnson, unrestricted. So most of their team, basically. How many of those guys and which ones do you think are actually worth retaining? Two. Thomas Bryant and Bobby Portis. Um, you don't think Sadoransky? You know what? I like Sadoransky, but I just don't think like... <sighs> See, I, I would rather keep Sado than... Um, Bobby Portis, I think. Yeah, you can honestly talk me into that. I've never, like, I think Bobby Portis, um, he's had some big games since he went to Washington. He, he's like a prolific numbers guy, I think he can be. I don't know how much he impacts winning. Uh, so you can talk me into that. But I actually, I like Thomas Bryant. I think he's had, like, in amidst this dumpster fire of a team, I think he's had a pretty uh, impressive start to his NBA career, despite the numbers maybe not being there. I like him. I think he's the kind of guy that the Wizards just never maximize and here's their chance to do something with him. I'm not saying he's going to be a star, but I think he can be, you know, a contributing piece of a winning team. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the guys you mentioned, I'd let them walk. And again, this goes back to why it didn't make sense. Like they moved Ubre for this. I don't even know if you'd call it a win now deal to get a reason. Like, I guess it is, but they moved Ubre and part of that too is it that definitely they, is. They I mean, didn't want to deal 34. with this restricted free agency, right? And the uncertainty that came with it. It's like 90% of your roster is a, like you, you, you got rid of Otto Porter, who was locked down because, okay, he was overpaid, but he was a good young player that still fit a potential rebuild age-wise. Right. And you moved him for Bobby Portis and Jabari Parker, who you have to make decisions on anyway. So it's just, like you mentioned, it was just like these yeah. weird compounding bad moves. And then even their justifications about more clarity like didn't make sense because they're bringing in guys they have no clarity on. It's just... I don't think that Parker really factored into their thinking there. I think he was salary filler. Honestly, I, I think they will happily decline that $20 million option. Maybe if they can bring him back for super cheap, they will. But I don't think they're going to lose any sleep over letting him walk. I think Portis was the guy that they wanted. And I think because they dealt Otto Porter for him, they're probably going to feel more inclined to match whatever offer sheet he ends up signing because they feel pot committed, you know, because they traded one of their three best players in order to get him. And I think that's going to change their thinking. Now, maybe because there's going to be a new GM coming in, he won't feel as attached and he won't care what they gave up to get Portis. He'll just look at him and say, look, here's what we're willing to pay to keep you. And if any team is willing to go above and beyond, we're letting you go. I, I, I think there should be a pretty clear threshold that they're not willing to cross with him. I, I think he is a limited player. Ultimately, I think if he is your first big coming off the bench, that's probably pretty good. If you're relying on him to play starters minutes, I don't think that's ideal. And if you're paying him more than like $12 million a year to do that, then I think you're going to be in some trouble, especially given that they already have a couple of pretty bloated contracts on their books. Um, what about the Beal thing? Let's say he makes all NBA and he's super max eligible. What do you do? Man. This, this is why Ted Leone just doesn't give me Ernie Grunfeld money. <laughs> that's a tough choice. Um, if he's super max eligible, I mean, I feel like you... You're probably going to give it to him to retain him. But you got two more years with him. Yeah. So, so that gives you an opportunity to flip him now with two years of term left and probably get a pretty nice return. Yeah. No, if, I think if he's super max eligible, I, I move him. I mean, it'd be tough. It's going to be tough for Wizards fans to swallow. Uh, at that point, you pretty much are fully embracing the tank with John Wall just kind of... John Wall's lifeless body left as as the pillar of this franchise as as it has been for a while. But I think that's what you got to do. If he's super max eligible, look, 
Bradley Beal's a nice player. He's good. We just talked about how he's a borderline all-NBA player, but giving a player like Bradley Beal um, supermax-type money is exactly the kind of deal that puts you in the situation the Wizards are in right now because he's good, but he's not that good. Right, but he's only 25. So I still wouldn't do it, man. I yeah, that's fair. I I actually listen if this I don't, team if this team was like on the the cusp of real contention mm-hmm. where you're like, look, we're just gonna have to overpay guys, but to keep this thing going, I I do it in a heartbeat. I because he is really good, but when you're in the situation they're in, I'm not giving Bradley Beal supermax money. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. I just think it, it does have to be one or the other. Yeah, no, because, I agree. You know the way that Beal has talked throughout this season. He wants to win. He's clearly not happy with the situation he's currently in. And, you know, if the Wizards can't get there in the next couple of years, which it certainly doesn't seem like they're going to be able to, then I don't think that he's going to be willing to re-sign there when his contract is up. So it's kind of like you either extend him now and lock in that cost certainty, or you get ready to flip him and embrace the full tank. I think it's got to be one or the other. I don't think you can avoid extending him and then just hang on to him and hope things turn around. Like, you got to make a decision. Yeah. This, is, this was, to me, like what damned Ernie Grunfeld and what made his tenure a failure. The lack of foresight and the lack of forethought in his decision-making. Like, you got to be proactive. So you either proactively lock him up or you proactively trade him. Sitting on your hands, I don't think, is an option yeah. here. The, the one thing I'll mention, too, is like, because I saw some people, not many people are defending Ernie Grunfeld, but a few people on Twitter we're mentioning that, like, well, it's not all him. It's like, you know, he had a mandate from ownership and Ted Leone is always just, like, wanting to chase a playoff spot and never really, like, having this long-term vision. Okay, I get that in a sense, but you can make that excuse if you got the raw end of the deal as a GM, as an executive, where, like, you're brought in by an owner, you're only given a three- or four-year leash, and then you're fired and, you know, you're left in a bad spot. And then you can say, okay, well, he was given this mandate by ownership to chase a playoff spot. It didn't work. And now he's out. It was, he had 16 years. I know we joke about it, but for real, you can't use that excuse. Well, he didn't know he was going to have 16 years coming into this job, though. I don't, I don't think Ted Leonzo okay, came to him and was like, listen, not, but we have a 16-year plan here. <laughs> at a certain point, I feel like Ernie Grunfeld realized there was some security in this job mm-hmm. and that he had more of a leash than some people are giving, you know, Leon's credit for it. Like, well, you if you look at it, it, I mean, like, they had three top three picks, and I, I don't think you can say that they missed on them. I mean, John Wall, the injuries are one thing, but I can't, you, you can't call him a bust as a number one overall yeah. pick. You certainly can't but, call Bradley Beal a bust as a number three pick in what was a very weak draft. Otto Porter, same thing. I mean, I, I think that was a perfectly acceptable pick as, as far as how he panned out for that team. So, it's just, I think a lot of circumstance played into it. A lot of things beyond Ernie, Ernie Grunfeld's control. Um, I think, you know, he ultimately, first of all, he failed to ever find an above average big man. Uh, Gortat had a couple of decent years, but as John Wall said a couple of years ago, they haven't had an athletic big man. He never played with one. And Gortat, I think, topped out pretty much as average. And as far as just like filling out the bench, filling out the roster around those guys, they never managed to do that to an acceptable level. And I think they were also just damned by a lack of cohesion on the roster and things just never quite fit the way that you would have hoped. And that, that kind of falls on everybody. It falls on the players. It falls on Ernie Grunfeld. And I, I think to me, the biggest thing is just like, you got to pick a direction right now. You need somebody who's going to come in with a clear vision 
for where they see this team in three years. And from there, you can actually start to put in place a plan to, to get there. To give people an idea of just how much Ernie Grunfeld has meant to this show, uh, I'd say within five minutes of news coming down that Ernie Grunfeld had been fired, I got Instagram DMs and was like tagged in comments, but I'm just going to shout them out because they are loyal listeners of the show. Alex Horton is actually a Wizards fan. Sent me a DM on Instagram, saying like asking if we were happy about this, and you know he can't wait to hear us talk about it. Uh, Krishna Seth, also uh, a fan of the show, tagged me in a comment saying he couldn't wait to hear us talk about this. I know a bunch of people on Twitter as well. Assad, who's a, a loyal listener as well. It's Ernie Grunfeld, honestly, became part of the Pound the Rock community without ever appearing on the show. So, and now that he's out of a job, Ernie, if you're listening, hey, there's come a, on anytime. There's a third mic in this studio, Ernie. Uh, this is a far more laid back and easier job. Uh, we know you had it rough and you were under the microscope for far longer than you needed to be. So come kick it with us and enjoy making fun of people from a detached perspective where you have far less at stake. Um, now that we've got that out of the way, assuming I, that you have nothing left to say know, to tie I, a ribbon I, on this. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think we're done talking about hit me with the Sarah McLaughlin no I'm kidding don't hit me with the Sarah McLaughlin music again don't actually do it but uh yeah I think I'm actually done talking about Ernie Grunfeld I I have no idea what I'm gonna talk about next week what's up Pound the Rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes SoundCloud Stitcher Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts we'd also encourage you to check out the scores other sports podcasts for Major League Baseball there's Expand the Zone for soccer we've got Sweeper Keeper Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL, and the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Let's talk about some teams that are still in the playoff mix and do still have some things to play oh, for this season. Do we still have time season. left on this podcast? <laughs> Um, let us get into some Sweet versus Heat uh, a segment brought to you by our friends at Subway, whose new Sweet versus Heat chicken sandwiches are making people choose which side they're on. So similar to how we did this last week, uh, Cash and I are each going to pick our hot teams for the week. And for our Sweet players, we are going to rattle through our picks for the NBA awards. Uh, so let's start off with our hot teams. Cash, who you got this week? You know what? I uh, we talked yesterday, and I said I was going to leave it up to what happened on uh, on Wednesday night, and they ended up coming through with a pretty convincing win. So I'm going to go with the Toronto Raptors. They have the second longest winning streak in the league, and I know we'll get to the team with the longest one once you're up. But yeah, they've won five in a row, and the first three were against the Bulls and the Knicks. So who cares? But I thought the way in which they pretty handily like dismantled Orlando and Brooklyn this week. Uh, two teams that are playing for their lives right now. And coming into the week, I thought, you know... Two teams they might play in the first round. Yeah, too. and two teams that had kind of given them trouble earlier in the year. Orlando especially. Yeah, and you just see it as like the Raptors are all but locked into the two seed. This doesn't matter. They're just trying to stay healthy. Figured, you know, Kawhi would probably get one of those nights off. And especially at Brooklyn, like they're losing one of those games. And instead, that Orlando game after a slow start, there was a stretch from like the mid-second quarter, late-second quarter to the end of the third quarter, where the Raptors essentially outscored them by about 27, 28 points in like 15 minutes of basketball. And it was that, you know, it's something I've talked about all year where this Raptors team, and especially since the deadline, they have this gear that I'm just not sure, I guess aside from Milwaukee, anyone else in the East can touch when they start rolling and look like they care, especially on the defensive end. There's just limbs and arms everywhere. They cover so much ground. Also, shout out, like, the last, 
I'd say three, four weeks. Nick Nurse is out of timeout wizardry has really come through. I don't know if it's a Nick Nurse thing, maybe more of a staff thing, but like he's run some beautiful out of timeouts plays uh, and blob plays, what they call them, baseline out of bounds plays. Like the Raptors are running some really pretty stuff right now. Um, they're dismantling teams that have a lot more to play for than they do. We'll see if it continues. They've got Charlotte and Miami coming up their next two games. They're, it's kind of interesting the way it worked with the Raptors schedule where they've got these four consecutive games against teams they could meet in the first round in uh, Orlando, Brooklyn, Charlotte, Miami. So we'll see if they keep this thing going. But yeah, I, I think right now they're my hot team of the week. I think that Fred Van Vliet thumb injury might be the best thing that's happened to them all season because Van Vliet honestly didn't quite look like himself for pretty much the whole season leading up to that injury. And, you know, he was dealing with some back issues. And this toe as well. He had turf toe from right. like the beginning of the exactly. season. So he gets five weeks off, you know, with a with a thumb ligament injury and comes back looking totally refreshed and renewed and has been excellent. And, and there have been a couple of times where he's been in the starting lineup because either Lowry or Leonard is sitting and other times when he's captaining the bench unit the way that he did last year. He, he has looked like the guy he was at his very best last year, uh, running the pick and roll, moving without the ball, hitting three-pointers, scoring at the rim, which was something you really struggled with early in the season. To have him back up to full strength, I think, is really important. This is the guy that earned the nickname Steady Freddy, right? Yeah. Like, because of just all the little things he does. And he wasn't that guy for the first few months of the season. He he like he looked like an old man out there, honestly, some nights. And you can see the toe in the back were bothering him. And yeah, the thumb injury, you know, obviously no one wants to get hurt. But like you mentioned, it got him five weeks off. It was an upper body injury, so he was still able to get his cardio in. And he... He came back into the lineup. I think he played like 30 plus minutes the first game in, in Detroit and and really hasn't looked back. And and the one thing too, we talked about like the Raptors being hot outside of just this week, the shooting is what really stands out because this was a team we talked about the first couple months of the season where their poor shooting didn't really make sense when you looked at the shooters historically on their roster. They went into the new year through December 31st. They were 25th in three-point shooting. They were abysmal and they were missing a lot of open looks. Their fourth... Uh, since January 1st. I think they're third since the All-Star break or maybe like first since the deadline, something like that. Um, they're first the last couple months, basically, especially with Marcus Gasol on the court. They're getting great looks. They're canning them. Danny Green is shooting the lights out. And that, to me, is has really been the difference in what their ceiling is because it's something I mentioned on Twitter. But you look historically at recent champions, especially as we've moved more into like a three-point era of the NBA, the last seven champions have all been top eight or top nine in three-point shooting. Mm-hmm. So that that looked like a legitimate concern for the Raptors until the last couple months. And now they're up to sixth in the league in three-point percentage when they were 25th a couple months ago. Yeah, and their defense has improved a yeah. lot too. Um, Gasol has, I don't want to say that he's made them necessarily better or worse. He's just changed their style of play. Their passes per game are way up. Their assists are way up. They their offense is a little bit different, and when they run pick and roll, uh, they're often running that to get three point shots rather than to get shots at the rim. And again, that's it, not necessarily a qualitative assessment; uh, it's just a fact. They are getting more and better three point looks, and they're using Gasol more as like a high post operator. They run a lot more offense through there than they did when they had Valanciunas there, or of course Serge Ibaka, who's you know more of a play finisher than an initiator. So they they actually look like a bit of a different team, and after. A couple of weeks of sort of ironing out some kinks, I think they're really starting to get a feel for each other and starting to look like the team that they look like on paper. And to me, it's funny because we talked about this team coming into the season as one that was going to kill teams with depth. Their bench has been low-key awful all year. And I think this is a team that's really going to benefit from shortening their rotation. 
And they, you know, you look at what they might look like in the playoffs. They're going to have a killer eight-man rotation. Yeah, just uh, to go back, I was mentioning the percentages. I didn't have the exact numbers. Yeah, so the Raptors, since the All-Star break, I mean, this is pretty sure it's unsustainable, but they're shooting 41.8% from deep as a team since the All-Star break. shout out to Danny Green. What, oh, what a season he is having, man. Second in three-point percentage, first in uh, defensive real plus minus among shooting guards, just shooting the lights out. Um, and honestly, uh, often defending the opposing team's best player. I know the Raptors have Kawhi Leonard, but one of the things, and it's it's kind of left people perplexed some nights, is a lot of times the Raptors are actually putting Danny Green on the other team's best player and not Kawhi, and yet his defensive metrics are still off the charts. I think he's one of the best off-ball defenders in the league as well. And, you know, we were talking last week about our all-defensive teams. He was he was probably the toughest cut for me. He just missed my second-team all-defense, but I, he certainly has a pretty strong case to be on there. And, again, his three-point shooting has just been absolutely off the charts. So you hope that he can keep that up and that the Raptors can, can continue playing the way that they have been because uh, it, all season long, I think it's looked like the Bucks are a pretty strong favorite to make it out of the East. You know health permitting i think they probably still should be considered the favorites just because their profile is that of a championship contender straight up i mean 45 double digit wins against four double digit losses they're 25 and 10 against teams at or above 500 which is by far the best mark in the league all the signs still point to them as being the best team but they're not as healthy right now as toronto is and i think you know you could say they're not playing quite as well as the raptors are right now so, I mean, I can't say definitively that they are going to come out of the East. I think it's going to be a dogfight. And I don't know which team I would give the edge to right now, but it's damn close. You mentioned the 45 double-digit wins. I can't remember who tweeted it earlier this week, but the, the only other seven NBA teams to have done that all won the championship. So there you go. Um, my hot team for this week is one that we haven't really talked about at all and I mean there's a reason for that which is that they haven't been playing very many good teams and so what they've been doing has kind of flown under the radar but I want to shout out the Utah Jazz who are 48 and 30 having won 11 of their last 12 games they are second in the league in defensive rating they are fourth in net rating and I mean that to me is a profile of a contending team so I'll just of those last 12 games, here are their 11 wins. They've beaten the Suns, Wolves, Nets, Wizards, Knicks, Bulls, Suns, Lakers, Wizards, Hornets, and Suns. Three games against the Suns, uh, and that sandwich is a loss to the Hawks. So that's not exactly a murderer's row, which maybe explains why we haven't given them a whole lot of attention. But we do have to look at a team's whole body of work when we're assessing their viability as a contender. And... On the season, look, they're 48 and 30. They're fifth in the West. Like I said, they're fourth in the league in net rating. And since they got off to a bit of a bumpy start and they, they weren't really defending at the level that we were accustomed to seeing, but since they started the season 14 and 17, they're 34 and 13. Uh, they have a plus 7.7 .7 net rating since the start of the new year. And that include, includes wins over the Bucks. They beat the Nuggets twice. They beat the Clippers twice. They beat the Blazers twice. They beat the Warriors um, so when they have played good teams, they have beaten them as well. It's just, you know, they haven't really been playing those teams lately. And a lot of this is just the product of them having started the season with such a tough slate. I mean, they... Again. Yeah, it's really weird how that happened. But 
at one point in time, they'd played nine more road games than home games. So now that the schedule is starting to balance itself out, I think we're starting to see the team that we actually expected to see coming into this year when a lot of us, you know, myself included, pegged them as one of the three best teams in the West. Yeah. And um, a few things to note here. First of all, Gobert has obviously been great. Win shares is like a, a pretty flawed catch-all statistic. But... I think it's worth noting that Rudy Gobert is third in the NBA in that stat. Now, that stat does tilt heavily toward big men. uh, But again, just a really impressive season from him at both ends of the floor. Derek Favors, I think, has played some of the best basketball of his career of late. Uh, The Jazz defensive rating when he's on the court is sub 100. It's the best on the team. And while pairing him with Gobert still hasn't really worked offensively, they've just been monstrous defensively when those two guys play together. Um, Donovan Mitchell has very quietly gotten his season back on track and then some after having a a really bumpy start himself. I just think his decision-making has been so much more fluid and solid and intuitive for the last couple of months. And he's scoring a little bit more efficiently. I think he's playing off of the ball a little bit more, which has helped out. And part of that is that Joe Ingles has become this kind of de facto point guard. He just gets better as a passer seemingly every game. And, And a guy who is like a actually like a really really solid pick and roll operator he can run your offense at an above average level and i mean his shooting actually hasn't been quite where it's been at the last couple of years but it's really started to come around lately defensive pass too absolutely i, th- I think a lot of people still don't realize just how good that no, guy is he's an is. elite three and d player yeah and uh quietly i think kyle corver was a really good pickup for them too just his ability to space the floor around those uh pick and rolls with gobert as the dive man um I think this is a really well-built team. And again, like they are a top two defense. Their offense has crept toward league average. I wouldn't want to see this team in the first round. Look, you mentioned um, the Bucks championship type profile. So the Jazz were 20 and 21 at the official halfway point of the season. That was the last time they were under 500. They're 28 and nine since. And in that span, the difference between them and the Bucks, 0.2 points per 100 possessions. Like, that's how good they've been. They've been the best team in the West, again, in the second half of the season. Um, they're mostly killing teams. They have a top six offense during that span. And again, we're talking about almost a half a season worth of a sample. Um, it's hilarious, really, how similar it is to last season when it, they got buried by that brutal schedule. They were like five or six games under 500. They then, I think they went like 29 and five to close the year last year. And now you see it again this year. They're. They're probably going to win about 30 games in the second half of the season again. Yeah. It's always keep the schedule in mind before you bury teams, man, because um, it, it matters. And obviously, yeah, they're not they're not as good as they've been the last 35, 40 games, whatever it's been. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're a hell of a lot better than they were early in the season. They're really good. They're well built. And as we've talked about with a lot of these non-Warriors West contenders, if they avoid the Warriors half of the bracket, they absolutely can get to the West Finals. And this is another team, too, that, I mean, they have some bumps and bruises, like some day-to-day stuff. But outside of Dante Exum, who's, who's going to be done for the season and wasn't really giving them a whole lot anyway, this is a team that's pretty healthy right now. Uh, and they have such a strong identity. They know they can beat you with defense. And, you know, I think everybody offensively really knows their roles. And that's been a big thing with Mitchell, too. I just think early in the season, he was really trying to do a little bit too much. He settled down and is really starting to score a lot more efficiently in the second half. So uh, shouts to them. Again, a team that we don't talk about nearly enough, but uh, they certainly have a chance to make some noise depending on how the matchup shakes out. 
let us move on to the second half of the show where we're going to talk about end of season NBA awards. Cash and I, for, for all of these awards, uh, we had a two-person ballot. Uh, so I'll start with you, Cash. What, what did you have uh, on your ballot for MVP? I finally made the switch. I was Giannis, Team Giannis, all year, and I still think he's having just an unbelievable season. I'm. I, you went with Harden. I've been swayed by James Harden, man. Okay. I think he's having, uh, and you can look at it like in terms of individual points per 100 possessions. He literally is having the most prolific season ever offensively. It is not fathomable what he does. Uh, how efficiently he scores at that usage rate because of his ability to get to the line. How efficiently he operates the Rockets offense even when it's not him shooting it because of the looks that he gets his teammates. And I understand that Giannis is probably, not probably, he's obviously the more complete player when you factor in defense. But um, James Harden, actually a really good post defender. It's something I've talked about before. And he gets switched on to big guys a lot because of how switch happy the Rockets are. And he holds his own. He's not a great defender, but he's... What he's doing offensively and how he resurrected that team. It's something uh, when the Rockets were in Toronto to play the Raptors. Uh, and I asked Mike D'Antoni about it. And he straight up said, he's like, we were dead. And he, James Harden lifted us off the mat. And that's kind of the MVP argument for James Harden. That this was a team that was in 14th place in the Western Conference. And that was before Chris Paul got hurt. And before Clint Capella went down. And... Through the singular brilliance of James Harden, they're now up to third in the West. They're back to looking like the biggest threat to the Warriors, at least in the West. I just don't know what else you can say about it. And again, it none of this is even taking away from Giannis because I've got nothing against Giannis's argument as yeah. being the best player on a juggernaut of a team. But if Harden wins, it won't be because Giannis lost the award. It'll it, be because because Harden, Harden averaged like thirty-seven points a game on solid efficiency and yeah. and took a team that had honestly. You can look at the rest of that roster, especially when you consider the the injuries they had, and say they had no business to even make the playoffs in the West this year. Or well, if, or if they did, they were they should have scraped to get in. Let alone they're going to win like fifty five. I'll say this: that stretch where Paul was injured and Capella was injured. I mean, Gordon even was in and out of the lineup. That should have sunk them. Not not out of the playoffs necessarily, but like they should probably be about where the Thunder are right now, which is staring at a potential first round matchup against the Warriors. And the difference between being in that place and being in a place where you're going to open with home court and probably going to avoid the Warriors until the conference finals is as significant, I think, as being in or out of the playoffs if you're going to be a first Agreed. round out. Agreed. So I definitely think that that deserves a ton of credit. I mean, 40.5% usage and 61.5% true shooting. So if you're taking that large a share of the offense and converting it into points at that rate, I mean, that you're an offense unto yourself. And I think, ultimately, first of all, I, I will say, I picked Giannis. Uh, I've ridden with him all season, and I just, I just couldn't move him out of that top spot. But to piggyback on your argument for Harden, I mean, Giannis has made everybody around him better. He has made that whole system work because it revolves around him. But in a sense, like he is still dependent on the players around him to make their shots, to space the floor for him. And Harden simply does not need that. He really is an offense unto himself. It doesn't really matter who you surround him with. He is going to be able to give you an elite offense just by virtue of being on the floor. And ultimately, you know, Giannis's defense put him over the top for me. 
But I also have to say, I think offense is more important than defense. So if you wanted to make the argument for Harden, I would not quibble with it. I just think Giannis's two-way impact has been completely undeniable to me. And where he has taken this Bucks team, I mean, it's one thing to keep a team afloat or to elevate the talent around you. I mean, we're talking about a team that has been number one in the NBA all season. Like, from the very first game, this team has not lost its grip on the mantle of best team in the NBA. And as a juggernaut, again, like, wrecking team. One of the best regular season teams ever. And I, I really like the way that this team is assembled. I think they are very well coached. And I think you will see as we go along down our awards, there will be other bucks in contention for these awards. But I think it starts with Giannis, and he deserves by far the most credit for making it happen. And I mean, just like the leap that he has made in terms of playmaking, like if you look at per 100 possessions, his assist rate is basically on a par with Harden's. And Which is pretty absurd. It's absurd. And, and look, like... I understand, yeah, like he, he benefits from the spacing around him. But if a team decides to just like pack the paint, Giannis is still going to score. Like he is completely unstoppable as a scorer. And and defensively, I mean, I, I can't say it enough, but uh, he, he is just such a ridiculous disruptor. And again, for the team that has the number one defense in all of basketball, this isn't just somebody who, you know, closes the gap on Harden with his defense. I mean, there is a huge, huge gap there. And I think that, to me, ultimately made the difference. So I picked him as my MVP. I put Harden second. But I wouldn't quibble either way. It's just that close. Yeah, and the one thing I'll, I will mention, you, I think you brought up a good point about offense actually being more important than defense. Look, I've, as I'm sure you have, I've been a, a two-way guy in, in terms of analyzing basketball. You know, as long as I can remember. It's why five years ago I was getting in arguments at the scores offices with people um, – about how I thought Paul George at the time was already better than Carmelo Anthony because of how much defense mattered, and I still uh, stand by that. But how long ago was this? This was this was the 2012-13 season. Oh, okay, going into the series when the Knicks played the Pacers. Right. Uh, it was like around George was like just breaking out, and Melo obviously was like in the MVP running. So it was kind of a contrarian stake, but I still stand by it. Um, but yeah, but. Especially in the new NBA, I think it is slanting more offense. And if you look at the uh, championship profiles of recent champions, it's it's really starting to skew offensively when you look at the metrics. And just on that note, um, when James Harden's on the court this season, the Rockets score like the most efficient offense of all time. When he's off the court, they would rank 26th this season. So... Obviously, you don't want to put everything on on-off numbers, and you know the defensive numbers aren't as kind to him. But that just just put that in perspective. Yeah, we'll that, put this in perspective too. So, for the season, according to Basketball Reference, uh, which I know you know the stats are different. For yeah, I was going sites, by NBA.com right but now. But per Basketball Reference, this year's Rockets have the eighth best offensive rating of all time, and consider that for long stretches of this season, their second best player was. I don't know, Daniel House, maybe PJ Austin Tucker. Rivers. I don't know. I'm almost talking myself into Harden as we're having this conversation. But no, I will stick with my guns and go with Giannis just because he, he has also had a, an absolutely ridiculous season. But I, I mean, let's just give credit to, to these two guys who have had two of the most brilliant seasons that we've seen in a really long time and uh, a, a truly inspiring and engaging MVP race right down to the finish. Um, but let's move on. Let's go with Defensive Player of the Year. Cash, uh, who's on your ballot? 
going with Rudy Gobert to take home the award for a second straight year. I gave heavy consideration to a couple other guys. I don't know maybe we'll get into them when you when you go with your pick, but I just ended up going with Gobert again because I still think, and I know they actually don't have the best defensive rating this year. The Bucks do by a half a point mm-hmm. per one under possessions, but um, I I think like all else being equal with like a balanced schedule per se, I, I I still think the Jazz are the best defense in the league, and I think Rudy Gobert is the reason why he's the best defender on the team that should be the best defensive team. And I still think he's the most intimidating defensive player in the league. I think it's one of those things where if you did kind of ask around the league, whether it's coaches, players, like I think most guys would see him as the most impactful defender. Um, I think it's been a great race this year because, again, I think there's a couple other guys that are legitimately in the running, but I still think Rudy Gobert impacts the game on that end more than anyone else alive right now. Yeah, I think that is totally fair um i did not have rudy gobert i'm going to go with paul george oh wow i I just think there are certain matchups in which gobert's impact gets diminished and i don't think you can say the same for paul george and ultimately i mean even if you just look at the numbers the thunder their defensive rating with paul george on the floor is the exact same as the jazz defensive rating with gobert on the floor the jazz's defense is actually better with gobert on the bench which, I mean, look, there's all sorts of noise in those numbers. Right. I'm not going to read That's too much Kawhi into that. That's the effect thing too, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do think like there are certain teams where you know they can pull him out to the perimeter. And if you're a jump shooting team or a team that thrives on exploiting mismatches, like say the Rockets or the Warriors, Gobert is not the same type of impactful defender because the thing that he is taking away, it just it doesn't matter as much for teams that don't thrive on, say, scoring at the rim in the first place. Whereas Paul George, it's like he can switch on to pretty much anybody and his effectiveness is not going to be diminished, I don't think, in any matchup. And basically one through four, I think he can guard just about any player in the league. He has the strength to bang with guys down low. He has the quickness to stay in front of guys on the perimeter. He forces a ton of turnovers, which is something that has fueled not only the Thunder's defense, but their offense this season. I mean, I don't know. I, I just think start to finish, he, he's been the best defender in the league. And uh, that's been so important to just keeping the Thunder afloat. I know, again, we've talked about it so many times in the last few weeks. They've been in a bit of a tailspin. And his MVP candidacy fell off pretty hard after he suffered that shoulder injury and hasn't been quite the same since he came back. I'm still going with him. And um, I actually had Giannis second on my ballot well, just ahead of Gobert. I think that was pretty tough. But... Again, if you want to look at how their teams have defended respectively with them on the floor, uh, the Bucks have been the best out of those teams with Giannis on the floor. They have about 100 defensive rating. And again, best defensive team in the league pretty much all season. Same thing, ability to guard five positions pretty much, uh, ability to be a free safety and rove and come out to the perimeter, affect shots at the rim, basically just be a jack of all trades defensively and, and the guy who has made that defense go. Uh, he was second on my ballot. Yeah, that's. I, I thought you were actually going to go with Miles Turner, who... So Turner for me actually was like in that mix all year. I think he and fell I think off. With he, the, the Pacers defense fell off too. Yeah, and I I don't put that all on him. I mean, I think their perimeter defense fell off a little bit harder just because not having Oladipo there put a little bit too much of a strain on everybody else to contain dribble penetration. I just think ultimately what it came down to for me was I how could I justify putting Turner there when Gobert does pretty much everything that Turner does, but a little bit better. No, I, I feel that. And... I agree with what you were saying too. I think Paul George, out of the guys we're talking about, might be the most matchup proof mm-hmm. defensively. I guess maybe Giannis as well. Um, yeah, and that's that's sort of what I was saying. Is like, right. It, you know how I did I, I did like endorse Rudy Gobert as Defensive Player of the Year last year. So maybe this is a bit hypocritical on my part. But when you're looking at two guys and you're looking for a tiebreaker, say 
if if one guy his impact can be reduced in certain matchups and the other guy can't then i feel like to me that's that's the tiebreaker right there okay so you weren't dissuaded by um Kawhi posting up Paul George and giving him that stank face like this what <laughs> what kind of defense do you, you know what I'm talking about in the Raptors Thunder matchup because I thought that might have tanked Paul George's defensive player of the year candidacy I mean maybe I would have if I didn't think Paul George actually did a really <laughs> yeah, it was, good it was job solid defense yeah it was actually solid um, defense it was funny like that that was a, a super fun uh home and home series yeah. between those two teams and for the most part PG and Kawhi just neutralized each other like they both played exceptional defense and didn't score that well and found each other matched up uh, on a number of different possessions and it was just super entertaining watching them go at it but uh no i was not dissuaded by, by that, by that one, one gift <laughs> oh, oh. uh as much as i'm sure it'll come in handy for memeable purposes in the future but let's move on to coach of the year cash who you got i'm going with mike budenholzer yeah. um there are a lot of worthy candidates crazy um, crazy some, deep field this yeah. year some a really good field, but man, what Mike Budenholzer's done with the Bucks, uh, and I know, yeah, Giannis gets a lot of credit too. But we talked about this at the beginning of the year. Like, it's so simple in theory to just be like, hey, why don't we surround Giannis with a bunch of shooters and also shoot a lot, like let it fly from deep and create this space for him. But yeah, it's it's easy to think about, but it's also easier said than done. And guess what the Underwhelming coaches they had before that never figured it out. And Mike Budenholzer showed up, figured it out, maximized Giannis's talent, maximized his impact on an offense. And because of it, he might win MVP. And the Bucks, as you mentioned, are having one of the best regular seasons ever when you consider their overall win profile and their margin of victory and all that. They're on pace to win 60 games. Like, I think Mike Budenholzer has done the best overall coaching job and the most transformative job out of anyone in the league. Well, transformative, I think, is pretty hard to argue. Yeah. And I also went with Bud. My argument, as we've kind of done these at the quarter mark and the half-season mark when we were doing our award picks, was, yeah, I don't know how much credit to give him because it's clouded by the coaching staff that was there before and the system that they were implementing that was clearly a little bit flawed or a lot flawed. <laughs> um, but I think like, if it was just instituting a new system and doing things a little bit more intuitively, that would be one thing. But he has completely transformed this team's at both ends. I mean, their defense is more improved than their offenses. It's not just a question of surround Giannis with shooters. It's instituting these organizing principles that the team has managed to stick to from day one at both ends. And uh, the way that they have defended, the, uh, the, the way that they have sort of like played within that offensive system and had these clearly defined roles, I mean... It's one thing to say, this is how we're going to play. And it's another thing to actually get your team playing that way. And I just think the team has made such an incredible leap. And they are, you know, if you look at coming into the season where we expected every team in the league to be and where those teams have all ended up, this is the team that has exceeded expectations by the greatest margin, in my opinion. So I went with Bud. Um, and second on my ballot was really, really tough because, again, there were so many coaches I feel like you could have put here. Uh, I had a, a pretty agonizing time trying to decide between Doc Rivers, Nate McMillan, and Greg Popovich, all of whom I think fall into the category of coaches who have done the most with the least. Michael Malone, too, I think you could put on the fringes of that conversation. I did ultimately go with Doc Rivers just because he's done it not only with a team that I think hasn't had the talent to be where it is right now, that you know managed to be more than the sum of its parts, 
but also one that's had significant roster turnover and that has had to reimagine itself as the season's gone along. And we've seen in Philadelphia kind of how difficult that process can be. The Clippers just keep chugging along and like smashing teams in the mouth night after night. And I just think this is one of the better coaching jobs of his career, if not the best. Yeah, no, I agree um, with having Doc second. Um, that You talk about like that team as well and trying to lure free agents and the way they've succeeded in um, in contrast to the Lakers. And a lot of that is just Doc Rivers uh, being able to kind of guide this thing through some very murky waters when you consider the stars that are coming in and out and the moves being made and the roster changes midway. Uh, midway through the season so yeah I agree with having Doc second in an agonizing decision as you put it uh, Nate McMillan's in there as you mentioned Pop Mike Malone I, not that I think they necessarily should get like first place votes but Kenny Atkinson and even Dave Yeager man like in Sacramento like the, these guys did yeah. jobs that Terry most stops. yeah even we were talking about the Raptors like considering the load management and some of their injuries for them to still be in the 55 to 60 win range I think is pretty good from Nick Nerd. like there's eight or nine guys that if they get like a second or third place vote I'm not going to be surprised at all yeah just a really deep field uh and I think we're at a point right now where there there are more quality coaches in the league I think than there have ever been before uh so that was a really tough decision and you know, Greg Popovich, we almost just don't even really talk about it anymore because it's just a given that he was going to do a magnificent job every year. But once again, uh, with a team that we didn't think made a whole lot of sense on paper, he has managed to make the parts fit together better than they had any right to do. So credit to him for yet another job well done. Um, let's move on to sixth man of the year. Another extremely deep race with a lot of candidates. I think there are a lot of varied candidates in this category just guys who have done it with defense guys who have done it with scoring uh guys at different positions like oftentimes this award comes down to just who is the highest scorer off of the bench my pick is going to be that guy once again <laughs> but uh i think this year it's actually deserved and he beat out a field of worthy candidates who have done a lot of different things off the bench but ultimately yeah i, I am going with lou williams as my number one and um my number two, I had DeMontis Sabonis, but let's hear from you, Cash. Who do you have? I also have Lou Williams. Like, I'm kind of echoing things I said a few weeks ago when one of us used him as the hot player of the week. But a lot of times, like you mentioned, bench, six man of the year goes to um, kind of an inefficient, just volume score off the bench, like Jamal Crawford the last time he won it. But Lou Williams, he kind of looks like a chucker in the way he plays, but he's actually a very efficient scorer who's really improved as a playmaker as well with the Clippers the last couple of years. He's averaging 20 a game um, on on efficient shooting. Again, gets to the free throw line as well as anybody in the league. And this isn't just the case of a bench scorer coming in and getting his. Like You can make the very convincing argument that Lou Williams is the Clippers' best player overall and has had their the best season overall for that team. So you can make the argument that he's just straight up the best player on a Western Conference playoff team that probably had no business making the playoffs when you considered it coming into the year and then trading Tobias Harris midway through the year too. So right. I just think Lou Williams is so much more than your typical sixth man a lot of times, but this year especially. And I, as great as some of the other guys' cases are, I think it would be a disservice to the award if Lou Williams somehow doesn't win this. Yeah, I mean, a couple things. Per 36 minutes, 27.4 points and 7.2 assists per game. That's outrageous. I mean, you mentioned his playmaking out of the pick and roll. That's been a huge part of what has made that bench unit so good. And again, a lot of these guys who 
like you said, are chuckers off of the bench. Oftentimes, they put up empty numbers that aren't really contributing to winning. But the Clippers have been 8.4 points per 100 possessions better with Lou on the floor this season. And, you know, as much as anybody, you can point to him and be like, look, this is the guy who has made this all work, who has allowed this team to continue piling up points and piling up wins despite the roster turnover and despite having traded their best player midseason. He has been just like such a bellwether for them and just continues to produce in every which way. So I think he's very deserving. And this was another one where my second place guy was really tough to pick. Uh, It came down to Sabonis and Montrez Harrell for me. And I went with Sabonis just because I needed to give like some recognition to a member of the Pacers this year because, (laughs) come on, man, they, they have had such an impressive regular season and and they have continued to play really well in in light of Oladipo's devastating injury and Sabonis to me has been the guy who has just been the most steady and the most reliable all year long and I was actually thinking about this like without Oladipo who do you think has been that team's best player because I I came up with I think like four guys who you can make a case for Bojan Bogdanovic who We'll talk about most improved next. He's He's got a case for most improved. Like, what a season he's had. Uh, Miles Turner is another one I think you could argue. Thad Young is another. And then there's Sabonis. And I think I, I it came down to Bogdanovich and Sabonis for me. But the number of things that Sabonis does, and just he's improved so much defensively, even from where he was at at the start of the season, that I think his two-way impact gave him the edge to me. Like, And, and his ability to be kind of a fulcrum and a guy who... Uh, they can play through as a hub out of the pick and roll and the four on three and from the high post and a guy who can get offensive rebounds. Like he does so much for them that uh, I had to give him some credit by putting him second on my extremely unofficial six man of the year ballot. Yeah. I, I've got no problem with Sabonis. I went with Montrose Harrell second for me. Um, I think he's having a great year, uh, kind of an underrated defender, I think too, because he's undersized for, for a big position, but no, I think he's had a great two way season and, I mean, the only reason he's not getting the award is because he's got a teammate who's an even better bench player than he is in Lou yeah. Williams. Yeah, I mean, to me, it, it kind of comes down. Like, if you're looking for a sixth man, one of the things I'm looking at is, would you be just as effective if you were a starter? And weirdly, I don't think that's the case for Lou Williams, and he still just had such a great season that it wasn't enough to dissuade me. But when it came down to picking between Harrell and Sabonis, I actually think Sabonis is more viable as a starter than Harrell is, just because... Harrell, I don't think, can hold up for long minutes at center and would not be as effective as a four. So that limits his effectiveness a little bit to me uh, if he was going to be a starter. Let's move on to most improved player. Uh, Cash, who's on your ballot for this one? It's Pascal Siakam, and I really don't think it's close. I know people have made the case for D'Angelo Russell. I know I'm assuming maybe you'll make the case for Boyan Bogdanovich, who's having a great year. But I just think he has taken this award and run with it as he does with a defensive rebound on a fast break. He's just gone. He's lapped the field, let alone pulled away from them. He's emerged as the consistently the second best player on a title contending team. And the last couple months, he's often the best player on the floor, period. Uh, this is a guy who's pretty consistently like giving you 20 points a night now, efficiently. He's become a better shooter. I think he's over 40% from the corners. He's over 35% from three in general. Um, he's a Swiss army knife defensively, which is obviously very important in the modern NBA. There's just nothing this guy, um, doesn't do. And I thought 
Wednesday night's matchup against the Nets, while obviously you never want to just use one game and pick that as a sample and be like, this is why I'm picking this guy. But I do think it was very indicative of the the argument for Pascal over D'Angelo Russell in that Siakam, um, I think for most stretches of the night, Kawhi was the best player on the floor, but at worst, Siakam was the second best player um, on the floor, again, for like a title contending team, a great team, and he did a little bit of everything, 28 points, 10 rebounds, 5 assists, efficiency, and on the other end, D'Angelo Russell was like shooting to keep the Nets in the game and ends up with 27 points, great, but on 28 possessions, like an inefficient 27 points. D'Angelo Russell's probably the best player on a solid, surprising East playoff team, but what Pascal Siakam has done as the second best player on a much better team and how valuable he's been to the Raptors having legitimate championship aspirations, I just think trumps anything anyone else can muster in this argument. Yeah, I agree. Siakam was my guy. Um, And for a lot of the season, I I was saying that we saw a bunch of this stuff from him last year. And one thing I do want to say is like, I've seen a lot of people act like Siakam's doing stuff that he'd never done before. Like he, like as if he hadn't handled the ball before, hadn't shown the passing chops that he's shown this season. He had done a bunch of that stuff last year. He had really expanded his game and turned into a guy who had a face-up game, uh, could handle the ball, could make plays, and could serve as a kind of de facto point guard. He's just taken that to such a new level this season that I couldn't ignore it. I mean, to bump up his usage rate by more than 5% and to simultaneously bump up his true shooting from 55 to 62%, a big stat that jumped out at me, his percentage of... um, unassisted field goals went up from 27% last year to 43% this year. And I think that's really telling um, because it it paints a picture of a guy who has really learned to create his own offense. And obviously, if you look at his efficiency numbers, he's not just creating his own offense, but he's creating his own offense at a very efficient clip. And um, just, you know, the, the leap from basically a solid supporting player to a borderline elite primary creator is so significant uh, that I agree. I don't think anybody else is really in contention for this. And and I didn't put Russell second, actually. I put De'Aaron Fox just because I still think for him to, to have taken his game from where it was last year to where it is this year, where he is not only the best player on a team on the rise, but a guy who has completely changed the identity of a team that has been without one for so, so long. I put a lot of value on that. I really do. No, and, and, you know, it wasn't just a case of him him really improving his game, which he has. I mean, he has brought his game under so much more control than it was under before. Um, and he has really figured out kind of like passing angles that he wasn't seeing before. Uh, he's figured out how to leverage his speed in a way that he wasn't really doing last year when he was kind of bouncing around and didn't quite know how to corral all that energy that he had. Uh, I think he has just totally changed the trajectory of the Kings franchise. And I think that alone is worth putting him on the ballot. Oh, no arguments there. Did you did you have him second or you had Russell second? I had D'Lo second. Um, but I had Darren Fox top two for most of the season. Mm-hmm. I just thought he and the Kings kind of tailed off at the end and as D'Lo and the Nets kind of started rising. Yeah. And then you had mentioned Boyan Bogdanovich. Uh, talk about how important this guy has been since Victor Oladipo got hurt. His last 29 games, he's averaging 22 points on 52% shooting and 42% from behind the arc. Like, that's essentially like number one option. Efficient number one option, which who the hell thought that for Boyan Bogdanovich? Their offense would have just completely cratered without 
without the work that he has done on that end since Oladipo went down. And it's come close to cratering at points anyway, but the fact that they've still managed to basically stay 500 when Oladipo hasn't played is a testament to Bogdanovich's ability to be a number one scorer, which is a crazy thing to have said coming into this season, right? Like, I don't think I could have seen that coming. So he's definitely in that mix. And this is just another field where there's so many candidates that kind of deserve recognition. I mean, Buddy Heald, the jump that he made this season, Nick Vucevic, um, so many guys who who have taken, I think, unexpected leaps this season uh, that I think deserve recognition. But there can only be two. So um, let's move on to Rookie of the Year, where I think the two for both of us are going to be pretty obvious and the order probably pretty obvious as well. But let's hear it, Cash, who you got? Yeah, Luka Doncic and then Trey Young. And my thoughts on this are pretty simple. I'm not going to go too deep. It's Trey Young's having an awesome rookie season, and he's been really good during the second half of the year. The Hawks have been like a borderline East playoff team for like three months now, if you look at their record. And Trey Young's been their best player during that time. But Luka Doncic has been better than him over the course of the full season. Basically, any metric you can use, Luka Doncic is better than him across the board. And I just, like, don't get cute about it. Luka Doncic has had the best rookie season this season. Like, conversation over, you know? And I think, honestly when you start to hear the buzz about maybe Trey overtaking Doncic, and I, I don't think there's been that much of it. I think it's actually been pretty well, overplayed. a couple but players came out. Like, I, I can't remember who it was. Blake Griffin was one of them. I'm yeah, someone sure. came out and said it, and then Blake Griffin said he seconded it, that Trey should win Rookie of the Year. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, players can say what they want, and, you know, their opinions are obviously no less valid than ours. You could argue that they're more <laughs> valid than yeah, ours. Yeah, you could argue that. Um, but to me, I think a lot of that is just, A, fatigue, because Doncic has been the consensus, basically the unanimous pick all year. And so to see somebody coming on strong late, I think it's inevitable that people are going to be like, oh, maybe the guy that we've been saying all year long is Rookie of the Year isn't actually Rookie of the Year. You want sort of like a fresh take to liven up the conversation a little bit. There's a bit of recency bias baked into that as well. And I think you could definitely say that over the past maybe six weeks, Trey Young's been the better player. Alas, you know, this is a full season award. And I don't think there's much debate that Doncic has been the better player all year. So, um, or if you take the year as a whole, yeah. um, so all credit to Trey Young for even you know making this a right. conversation. He's been fantastic, and it's been great to see him really come into his own because he did look a little bit overmatched his first month or so. It was ugly, especially because he just you know the one skill that he was supposed to come and like was going to be ready made for the NBA. Like, he wasn't shooting the ball well. He was shooting, like, 25% from three. And it was like, this is a guy who'd been bombing 30.3-pointers at Oklahoma. And so it was a bit of a troubling start for him when, like... I mean, there was always his passing, of course, but the skill that was expected to translate without much difficulty was not translating. But obviously, he's found his footing, has, has shot the ball really well since then. And as many people have noted, he has just shown signs of being a special, special passer. And I think, you know, if you look at what we were just saying about De'Aaron Fox, I mean, how quickly has the Atlanta Hawks future projection turned around in light of what he, both he and John Collins have done down the stretch of this season? I mean, that's a team suddenly that has a pretty sunny outlook moving forward, especially when you think that, you know, they might nab another top five pick in the coming draft. Yeah, I mean, if things ended the way they are right now, percentage-wise, they'd get two top six picks, right? Because of the Mavs pick as well. Yeah. So. Oh, man, if the Mavericks finish with a sixth pick... Yeah, that's going to sting. Like, right now, I mean, I don't know if the Mavs are intentionally trying to fall, like, so they end up in the top five. 
But if they intentionally tank their way to the sixth pick, I mean, that'll just be delicious. Yeah, scintillating. (laughs) Um, So our last award here is Executive of the Year. And I think uh, this is a pretty interesting one. Another one that I think is pretty much a two-person race. But ultimately, I went with John Horst in Milwaukee. And I had Masai Ujiri second. I... It's tough for me, okay, because I had Giannis for MVP. I had Bud for Coach of the Year. And now I'm thinking, like, do all of these guys deserve all of this credit? Like, is that is there enough credit to basically go around? And the answer I ultimately landed on was yes. <laughs> you know, because Bud absolutely deserves to be recognized for the work he's done in transforming that team. Giannis absolutely deserves to be recognized for... First of all, the way that he's transformed his body, the work that he has put in, and the fact that he has basically been healthy all year long and played at more or less 100% every single game uh, and has been the, the the one single, I think, defining force that has brought that team to where it is now. And for John Horst, I mean, it was his vision. You know, you talk about the, the, the way that this team has been constructed this year. I mean, it was his vision to, to bring that to fruition, to bring in... Uh, Brooke Lopez and to foresee him as being basically a floor spacer as a big and a guy who could also transform their defense with his ability to protect the rim um, brings on Ursan Ilyasova who basically ser- serves the same role off of the bench makes the midseason trade for Nikola Mirotic I mean uh, they're just like there haven't been many misses and everything is, he's done I think has has come with an explicit purpose uh, and all of those things have added up to the team that we see today. And, you know, that's before even getting into the fact that he signed Mike Budenholzer, who was one of the single biggest offseason additions, I think, in the league. I mean, you take all that together, and uh, I-, I couldn't justify giving it to anybody else. Yeah, I went with Masai Ujiri and Horst second. Um, I think you absolutely give Horst credit for hiring Budenholzer. Like, that's part of an executive's job. For me, it came down to Horst hiring Budenholzer and adding Brooke Lopez compared to Masai Ujiri turning DeMar DeRozan, Yaka Pirtle, Jonas Valanciunas, DeLon Wright, and CJ Miles into Kawhi Leonard, Danny Green, and Marcus Gasol. And also, like, along the fringes, finding a guy like Pat McCaw, you know, like, taking him from... The, like, there was just too much Masai this season for me to go with anyone else. He did a lot in a, what, nine-month span? Like to transform this team yep. that a lot of people thought had plateaued. I I just, I don't know what else to say than just look at what he had and what he turned that into and what this team is now. I think that's 100% fair. And again, this is another one where it's just so close that I'm not even going to bother to quibble. And the one thing I will say in Masai's favor is he has been building to this for a lot longer than John Horst has. And... I don't know actually which one of those things makes a candidate more deserving of credit. Like, do you look at the guy who, when you look up and down the Raptors roster, you're like, oh, these are all moves that Masai made. He himself constructed this team and every piece of the machinery that he has put together to make this whole is something that he did. And it was his vision. And from the start, and you look at where he took this team when he took over, uh, what that team looked like and what it looks like now. I mean, you don't want to make this a lifetime achievement award necessarily, but when it's entirely his vision, I feel like maybe that tips the scales toward him. On the other hand, when it's a guy who's basically come in and in a very short amount of time completely changed the outlook of a team with the moves he's made, I don't know, maybe that's the thing that you want to reward. Uh, 
it was actually really tough for me to decide which yeah. of those things uh, deserved more recognition. And ultimately, I landed on John Horst. Uh, maybe I'm having second thoughts <laughs> yeah, about it the, now. But the, the way I counter that is that even if you just wanted to look at it as like, what's the guy done over the last year in the mm-hmm. short, I still think Masai's done more. Right. Which is, yeah, yeah. that's fair. Uh, but if you want to go back, it's like, you know, John Horst is not responsible for Giannis Antetokounmpo right. being on the Bucks, whereas Masai Ujiri is very much responsible for Pascal Siakam yeah. being on the Raptors. For Fred Van Vliet. For yeah. Um, all, all of the things around the margins that have made the Raptors as good as they have been, uh, that's all Masai. So another very tight race, um, and you could make an argument for either one of those guys. But that is going to wrap up uh, our awards picks and this episode of Pound the Rock. When we talk to you next week, the regular season will be over and we will be here to preview all eight first round playoff series, none of which are set in stone right now. So it should be a really exciting final week as we figure out who's going to match up. But for now, I'm signing out from Joe Wolfond and Joseph Cacharo. We'll talk to you all next week. R.I.P. Ernie.